All right, guys, so tell me some things about the Gospel of John. Especially, we've done uh, all four Gospels now. Actually, first, quick prayer. Father, thank you for the Gospel of John and, and this inspired word to us. Let it change us. In Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, the Gospel of John, especially in comparison with the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What did you notice as you read it? Because, of course, you read it. We all know that. <laughs> yeah. What are some ways? I know this, that Lazarus is on hand, uh, John, the slam, who's raising Lazarus, that's the sign of his and the eyes of his Yeah. And it seems like a pretty significant story, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so some things in John that are not in the Gospels and the reverse, of course. What did you notice about what's not in John that's in the other Gospels? Uh, good. That's right. Parables. Transfiguration. Very good. There also seems to be like very specific miracles. Not like just a lot of miracles out there like he healed by different people. This is like very specific ones like the way they paint out like Lazarus, the blind man. To have like specific reasons, like why it's included, mm. that John gets trying to show something about him. Yeah. Yeah. So that's 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 a good observation. So it has not just a bunch of miracles, but specific miracles. And what are some ways that John tells you that that these are that each of these is kind of significant? They're like yeah. this. Is I am statements connected to the miracles. Is that what... Okay. Go for what you're saying. Uh, he was saying. There's a couple places that said, like, this is the first sign Jesus did. Like, they set it apart. Yeah. So this is the second sign. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of times, just to piggyback on what Kirsten said, so the you have a miracle and then you have this extended teaching before or after it. So it it's, uh, it's not, you know, in places like um, Matthew 8, you actually have a bunch of miracles. Um, but in John, he tends to have fewer fewer miracles that are described in a much longer way. So like the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, uh, that's the first part of John 6. But then the rest of like 40 verses of John 6 is kind of building on that miracle and explaining some things about it. Um, so that's actually in general what you have in John, right? Fewer things described in a much longer way. Yeah, anything else about the Gospel of John? I have a lot more discussion about who Jesus is, and especially John just telling you straight off that he's the Messiah, Son of God, whereas Mark, for instance, is trying to have that hint and point at it, but it's not so yeah. clearly given. Yeah, John, just right off the bat, those first 18 verses, he just tells you tons of things about Christ, these really powerful, profound things. Yes, that is very true. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, there's a reference, there's a funny reference to Bethlehem um, where it says something like, he can't be the Messiah because we know the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. And John just leaves it kind of hanging there. He doesn't explain that, well, actually, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's kind of a 
you know, as a reader, you, we know we've, we've read Matthew, we've read Luke. Um, so it's some sense of irony there. Ellie, do you want pulling that doorstop out? Yeah. Uh, one more, one more thing about John. This is different. Good. I'm glad you noticed that. Yeah, we've been talking about the, with that with the arrangement of John versus the arrangement of Matthew, Mark, Luke, the synoptics. And that is definitely uh, the case. All right, cool. So let's turn to the outline. You guys uh hit many things I'm going to hit here. So some unique elements of John. I've got five things here. Uh, one is fewer, longer. Um, and some of the some of the stories or, or conversations Jesus has with people are an example of that. So John 4, the woman at the well. So Jesus has this really long conversation, actually, with the, with the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's wonderful. It's dramatic. And it leads to this great moment of revelation of Christ and salvation for her. Um, and one of the reasons we love John is because you have all these very personal involved uh, moments, personal moments. Um, so John three, we're going to look at uh, later um, conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus, uh, the Pharisee, same thing. So G Nicodemus comes in the night and has these questions for Jesus and John or Jesus just instantly redirects uh, Nicodemus's question to what Jesus wants, to the real issue and what Jesus wants to talk about. Great moments, uh, the healing of the blind man. I think that was mentioned, uh, John 9. Again, you get a, uh, not just a, a healing blind Bartimaeus. It was, you know, Bartimaeus is on the side of the road. Uh, you know, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops, heals the blind man, and then he goes on to Jerusalem. But in John 9, you have this, this really powerful healing of a blind man. The guy doesn't even know who Jesus is because he didn't basically didn't see him. And he was healed, but then couldn't see Jesus. And so then Jesus comes back at the end of John 9. If we have time to look at that. Uh, again, just a longer story, very developed uh, personalities start to come out. Um, you know, if you can if you can call it that, Jesus's personality comes out a bit. Um, but definitely the personality of the Pharisees and the people that are are ministered to so that that's one of the reasons we all love john um it's a common recommendation that that someone would read the gospel of john you know if you're if you're trying to introduce jesus to somebody who doesn't believe in christ it's common to start with the gospel of john in some ways that's um that's a challenging way to start because john is deep waters um you know some people start with mark because it's just direct it just launches in tells the story and you kind of you can you can kind of explain to the person along the way who Jesus is. But John's nice because you get all these very personal encounters and someone who's no matter what you what your background is, you're going to be able to relate to somebody in, in the gospel of John. And then as Jesus ministers to them, you think, oh, yeah, I get that. Um, so that's the first one. Uh, fewer, longer, extended moments. The individual. So kind of along the lines of the the uh, uh, individual 
ministry of Christ to, to people, you also get this accent on how we're supposed to respond to Jesus. And with John, it's, it's believe. So faith, believe, faith, believe those words just pop up all the time. John, um, it doesn't mean that he, he thinks you need to uh, believe and not obey as if obedience is not part of that, but all obedience flows out of faith. If you don't have faith, you can't obey. And so if you believe you will obey. And so in some ways, faith encompasses uh, believing and obeying. Um, it's, it's been talked about a lot. If you, if you ever take a Greek class um, in college or if you ever go to seminary, uh, you will definitely look at the Gospel of John because it's the simplest Greek. Uh, once you once you start learning some Greek, you can you can almost instantly uh, start to translate John's Gospel. But that can be deceptive because that uh, can give the that can give the impression that John is a simple gospel and that it's and that the ideas are simple. Actually, the, the power of John's gospel is that the ideas are very profound and very deep, but they're expressed in simple languages, simple language. Uh, so um, I'll hit these a lot today. Um, we'll just stop it there. That's 8.12. John 8.12. So I am the light. Uh, I don't know, maybe that's um, four words in Greek. So, ego, ami, hapos, uh, I think. Hapos, uh, and in English, simple words, right? You know, you would be in uh, first grade, you could read this, right? So tell me what, tell me what it means, though. What is it getting at? And just as a hint, there's a lot of right answers for this. There are some wrong ones, but there are a lot of right ones. He's the light of the world. Actually, in John 8, 12, that's where, that's where he goes. And that means what? It means he allows people to to see where they're going and to be able to go the way they want to go, like go the way after Jesus. Good. Yeah, so you, he enables you to see. It's a great concept. Um, and he enables you to go, we'll call it, just go the right way. Yeah, anyone else? What does... Jesus saying, I am the light mean. The light is the darkness. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, saying light calls us to think about dark. Uh dispel the darkness. So, you know, we walked in the room today and turned on the light, and what happened was the light totally disappeared. You know, there's it's an imperfect light, so there's shadows in the room, but basically the light totally disappeared, right? Instantaneous. Wherever there's light, there is no dark. The two, they can't coexist. You have one or the other. And so, yeah, he he scatters the darkness. Um, and you said overcome. He just he the darkness. Yeah, he overcomes the darkness. So uh, the darkness that John's talking about is an evil darkness, right? It's a it's a satanic darkness. It's a sinful darkness. It's 
It's a darkness that's actually opposed to God. It's not a it's not a passive darkness. Like, you know, the room was dark in a very passive way. It was not an evil darkness. It was just physically dark, right? But the darkness in the world is actually opposed. It's a force that's opposed to God. And yet still, when the light comes, it does not overcome, or the darkness does not overcome the light. And the darkness, the light dispels that darkness. Well, anyway, that illustrates the point, right? So I am the light, very simple words. If you were talking to the youngest of unbelievers, they would be able to read those words, and yet you could explain it in all of these very profound, powerful ways. Um, yeah, so that leads us to the I am statements, uh, letter D here. And these are these are great if you ever, if you ever just think, I want to know Jesus better, I want to... Uh, and I want to have some good verses to memorize. So these are these are great candidates. Uh, I memorized these when I was so I got saved when I was eighteen. So I think like around twenty or twenty one, I memorized these, and they've just always served me ever since. Um, so John six thirty five is the first one. I am the I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Which follows which miracle? Pop quiz. Yeah, the feeding of the 5,000. So that's, that's uh, so you get the sign, which is this event. So Jesus provides bread for 5,000 people miraculously. And then they follow him. And then he begins to teach about, well, there's, there's physical bread. That's a good thing. But I am actually the bread from heaven. I'm the bread of life. So when we get to John 8, 12, we, we looked at that one. Uh, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not. Sorry, I've got a different version memorized. Uh, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, 12. Um, that one's kind of interesting because it's it's uh, it's being um, it's being spoken during a festival, a festival which is very concerned with light. So lighting candles and uh, the the sacred candlesticks uh, were part of that there, that ceremony. So. Uh, light is being is on everyone's mind, and so what Jesus is saying is, there's again, there's physical light, but I'm telling you, I am the light of the world. And then we get to John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Um, what are some surprising things about that verse? Those two verses. John 10, 14, and 15. It says that he lays down his life for the sheep. That yeah, that is surprising. You know, we we were accustomed to that idea that Jesus died for us. However, that is that is definitely surprising. So Jesus is the shepherd in all kinds of various ways, but one of the ways is he actually gives his own life for the sheep. Yeah, another surprising thing here. Yeah, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, Jesus knows the Father really, really well. And so he's 
he's saying that there is some analogy there between our relationship to Christ and his relationship to the father. Yeah. Very surprising. And so that's, uh, so that's, you have, you have the healing of the blind man in John nine, and then that leads into this teaching in John 10. So the Pharisees are the bad guys. And of course they're almost always the bad guys in the gospels. Right. But in John nine, they're the bad guys because they're attacking this guy who has been healed. And, uh, and so then Jesus begins to teach about, uh, about these shepherds, you know, Pharisees, a shepherd is a leader. Uh, so the, the priests were called shepherds, kings were called shepherds in the Old Testament. And so when you get to these Pharisees, they're the shepherds of Israel. And so what Jesus is saying is they are, they are false shepherds. They are bad shepherds. I'm the good shepherd. They're the bad shepherds. And in fact, he compares them to the thieves. The thief comes to kill and steal and destroy, right? The, the thief doesn't have any love or affection or concern, true concern for the sheep. And the hired hand, you know, maybe they're not a thief, but maybe they're just a hired hand. The hired hand, uh, you, you pay the guy, hey, can you watch my sheep for an hour and a half? I need to go, whatever, pay my taxes. Uh, can you take care of my sheep? Well, he's a hired hand. He's like, these aren't my sheep. I'm not dying for this, these sheep. You know, if that wolf comes, he's like, I'm running. I'm out of here. Uh, and so Jesus says the hired hand won't lay down his life. I am the good shepherd. So he makes this powerful comparison between himself and the Pharisees. I am the good shepherd. Um, and then he he just he plays out that analogy. So very powerful statement. And then we get to John 11, and that's where the healing or the resurrection of Lazarus is. Jesus said to her, pop quiz, who is the her? There's only, what? I said Mary. 50-50 shot, right? Mary or Martha? And it's actually Martha. Um, Martha has the first encounter with Jesus, and the second encounter is with Mary. Um, but yeah, Jesus is talking to her. He's explaining the resurrection. Um, and G Lazarus hasn't yet been raised from the dead. So he's that's going to happen in uh, like verse 45 or something. But in, here at the beginning of this, he has a conversation with, Laz with uh, Martha. He's explaining, I am the resurrection. Um, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so that's about to happen, right, with Lazarus. Um, and then we get to John 14. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Talking to, is it Thomas? Not Philip? All right, let's see which one of us is correct here. Uh, Thomas said to him, well done. Uh, Thomas said to him, so this is in the upper room. Uh, this is the Thursday night before Jesus is crucified. Uh, they've had the, the last supper probably, uh, by this point. Um, and so that, so he has this extended teaching portion called the upper room discourse. Cause it's, it's a, it's a, it's a discourse that happens in the upper room, very cleverly titled. Uh, so, he, so from 13 to 17, all those chapters are this, uh, this section. And if you have a Bible that has words in red, 13 to 17 is just, it's just all red. Uh, there's, there's hardly any, any black letters there where Jesus isn't speaking. Um, but Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Um, 
said right before that, Jesus had said, you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do, uh, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So it's a very, it's a very profound question. Um, there's a practical side, which way, you know, which way do I go uh, to get to downtown Apex or whatever? And in some ways, Thomas probably has that kind of idea in mind. How do we know the way? But Jesus um, takes that idea of, of, you know, what is the way? What is the way to follow God? Which way does God want me to go? You know, you're you're about to enter college. Which way does he want me to go? This major or that major? Should I go to college? Should I go that way or, or another way? Which job does it, the Lord want me to take? You know, which way should I go? And there's a, so those are important questions, right? You're going to have to make life decisions um, for the rest of your days. But it is good to go back to this statement um, as a kind of a foundational reminder to yourself. Because in response to that, show me the way, Jesus says, I am the way. So it is true. You have to make a practical decision. I can, I can only go this way or that way, or I can I can choose not to go any way at all. I guess I can just stay in bed today. Um, but ultimately, the the answer to which way should I go, Lord, is Christ. Christ is the way. He is the way. And the same is true for the the truth. You know, we, you know, Lord, reveal your truth to me. And Jesus's response is, "I am the truth. I am the truth." And then he goes on, no one comes to the Father except through me. Um, so the way to the Father, and that's the most, in terms of, the, of knowing which way to go, that's the supreme, central, important way that we need to be concerned about. The way to the Father is through Christ. And then we get to another I am statement in, in chapter 15, still in the upper room discourse. Uh Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Yeah, nothing. That's a really important word in that verse. I can do, uh, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And there is there is an absolute truth to that. You can't take a breath without Jesus. Uh, you're, the atoms of your body do, will not hold together without Jesus holding them together. Uh, his his power sustains you in that kind of absolute way. Um, but it's really true when it comes to anything spiritually important or anything of spiritual consequence. You can do nothing apart from Christ. So you're, you know, you're uh, concerned about a, a cousin who's unsaved and and you hung out over Christmas. And so... There is no salvation for that cousin or anyone else without Christ. You can you can do nothing without Christ. So that's another one of the statements that's very life-orienting, uh, very life-centering. You can do nothing without Him. So that's a that's a great that's a great part of um, John's Gospel. And one of them I probably should have included here is eight fifty-eight. So turn to eight fifty-eight quickly. Because this kind of tells you why why does John keep doing this? Why does he keep why does he use this device? Obviously, Jesus said these words, but why is why did John go to such trouble uh, to preserve them for us? And John eight is another one of those uh, the Pharisees, the bad guys moments, you know, where they have this really intense back and forth argument, and it's uh, it's really great. All kinds of wonderful things are said. Um, 
Uh, where should I start? It's just also good. Um, yes, I'll, we'll start at verse 51. All right, so this is uh, uh, the Jews and the Pharisees and Jesus having this really intense, it's almost like a trial, Jesus on trial. And as often, as often happens, when someone tries to put Jesus on trial, they become the ones who are actually on trial. And so John 58, 51, so this is Jesus speaking, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He will never see death. All right. So, and this is a very intelligent audience. They understand life and death. They're, they're educated Jews. They understand the Old Testament. They understand that the consequence of sin is death and such things. They know the promises of, of eternal life. In other words, they, they, get, they get the power of that statement. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Very dramatic word. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You were not yet fifty years old, and have you not seen and you have and have you sorry, you were not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So before Abraham was, I am. That's the Greek, ego eimi. So why did they pick up stones to throw at him? They've been going back and forth for, I don't know, is it is it an hour? It's hard to, it's hard to know, but they've been going back and forth intensely for a while. Why all of a sudden... Are they going to pick up stones to throw at him? Yeah, it goes, it goes back to Exodus uh, 3.14. So Moses asked the Lord at the burning bush, who shall I say is sending uh, me to to the Pharaoh? To Pharaoh? And God says, uh, tell them I am who I am sent you. I am who I am. And in, and then, um, all right, so... So Old Testament originally in Hebrew, but it's translated to Greek uh, in the Septuagint. Um, and actually, the, that the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, is the one that's used um, by the New Testament authors more often, actually, than the Hebrew Old Testament. And so a lot of times when they quote the Old Testament, they're going to quote, well, and our New Testament is written in Greek. Uh, kind of the language of the day, it was like the English of the day. You know, you go to a lot of countries in the world today, you get, and if you speak English, you can communicate. Uh, so Quinny Greek at that time in that place was kind of like that. So they wrote the New Testament in Greek to communicate to the most possible people. Um, and... It happens to be that in Exodus, 
3.14, the I am is, is, is exactly, the I am in Greek is exactly what John says in his New Testament Greek, uh, John 8.58. I don't know if you've tracked all that linguistic stuff, but anyway, that's it traces back to Exodus 3.14. And so all, actually all those places where it's I am the light, it's it's basically also going back to Exodus 3.14. It's this, um, you know, it's another way of saying God is the light, Jesus is God. Uh, Yahweh is the light, Yahweh is Jesus. Um so that's why they picked up stones to throw at him because he was making himself out to be the God at the burning bush. In other words, like the highest moment in the Old Testament revelation of God, Jesus is saying, yeah, that's me. That's who I am. Um, so that's why, that's why um, these I am statements are such a prominent part of John's gospel. It's another way of communicating that Jesus is God. What I'm trying to tell you, is that Jesus is God. And he's going to tell you in a lot of different ways. Okay, number two, who, no, three, who and when? Who do you think wrote the Gospel of John? John, good answer. Um, yeah, this is another one of those where you have internal evidence, external evidence. External evidence means the um, early church fathers said, John wrote the gospel of John. Um, and then you have internal evidence, which is where it, it holds together as if uh, the gospel, as if, as if the apostle John wrote John. Uh, there's actually a bunch of Johns in the, in the new Testament, but the apostle John is, is absolutely the, the best option here. So he was an apostle. He was with Jesus in all the events that are described um, and then throughout uh, uh, his own gospel, he refers to this nameless beloved beloved disciple or the or the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never uses his own name uh, at those at those spots. Um, and the reason that's important is because the you know in other gospels where it was uh, Peter, James, and John, kind of the the big three, uh, that that John is kind of conspicuously absent. Um, so those, those places are significant, um, you know, process of elimination is often used to, to get you down to, uh, the apostle John is really the only legitimate option. He is, he does mention his own name, uh, in revelation, um, in the writing of revelation, the letters of first, second, third John and the Gospel of John all have very similar writing styles, vocabulary. Uh, they all definitely feel and sound like that they're coming from the same author. So that's another way you can approach that. Um, yeah, so Revelation 1.1 mentions John by name. Um, and then, um, as, as is often the case, you get uh, early church testimony. So Irenaeus, who knew Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, um, so these are these are guys who knew each other, um, um, and so the so when those guys attach John's name to the Gospel of John, that's a pretty powerful testimony. Eusebius uh, is a he's a slightly later writer, um, but he does quote an earlier source, Clement of Alexandria. 
anyway, it's very, it's just very consistent. There was never any other real candidate for the Gospel of John. Um, sorry, yeah, for the Gospel of John being authored by John. Uh, the date of the writing, lots of variety here. Um, 50, John D.A. Carson says anywhere from 55 to 95. Um, the only reason 55 is significant. So in 70, what happened? 80, 70? Yes. Temples destroyed in 80, 70. So 55 is obviously before that. Uh, so it's it's actually very possible that he wrote before the destruction of the temple and that all the New Testament books that are before, written before the before the destruction of the temple. It's also possible he wrote a good number of years after that. Uh, so maybe in the, well, like D.A. Carson says, up to 95 is possible. Um, what's, what's not very likely is that he wrote right after the destruction of the temple. If he wrote right after, well, it would be really bizarre if he didn't mention it. Um, if he wrote 20 or 30 years, or let's see where we, uh, 70 to 95, so 25 years. If he wrote 25 years after the destruction of the temple, that makes sense that he wouldn't mention the destruction of the temple because by that point, history has moved on. The people of God have moved on. It's not the big deal uh, any longer. Um, so, yeah, so probably right, you know, that 55 to 70 range or, you know, much, you know, 80s, 80s or 90s after that. And the the um, the assumption is that he wrote the Gospel of John first. People got the Gospel of John. They got confused about some things. And so he followed it up with the letter of First John to clarify. That's not what I meant. Or here's what I meant. Or, uh, yeah, what you're doing, don't do that. Here's what you should do. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of. Uh, um, so the God as the light is a very powerful part of First John, but walking in the light. Walking in the light is a big emphasis in John's gospel, or sorry, the first John. And so that, that might tell you that perhaps people read his gospel and they thought, oh, all I have to do is believe. What, how I live doesn't matter. Uh, all, I have, all I have to do is believe. And first John tells you, yeah, by believing, though, that it's going to imply that you're going to walk in the light and not just believe in the light. Um. Yeah, place. Uh, D.A. Carson says that Ephesus is the most reasonable guess for the location. No other location has the support of church fathers, rightly or wrongly. They point to Ephesus. Um, and so what, yeah, what happened early in the church is that the, you know, the centerpiece of the church was Jerusalem for a long time, right? So in the early part of the book of Acts, all the, uh, a lot, at least a lot of the key activity happens in Jerusalem. But then things begin to change. Persecution comes. They're scattered throughout the Mediterranean region. And by John's writing, Ephesus becomes one of the real central uh, uh, locations for the church. Um, you know, so Paul, Paul has three years of evangelism in Ephesus. So he's preaching night and day for three years uh, to the extent that he says all of Asia uh, has heard me. Um yeah, so then so then John, another uh, of the most prominent apostles, makes his way up there as well. All right, so why did John write his gospel? Turn to chapter 20, verse 31.
Um, a lot of time, I mean, in the New Testament, a lot of times the authors, they kind of make you work to figure out why they wrote the book. You know, you, you might say Matthew, Mark, and Luke, well, to talk, to tell you about Jesus so you can believe in him and be saved, but they don't actually say that. It's, it's kind of obvious, but they don't actually say that the book of Acts. You know, why did, why did Luke write the book of Acts? You, you just have to think you have to, you have to, you see these verses, you have to kind of assemble the parts and then you kind of figure it out. Uh, but John, John is just very direct. Just like in John one, he's really direct. This is the Christ I'm talking about. This is the Jesus I'm talking about. Uh, and then at the end of chapter 20, he says in verse 30, 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did he write the book? What's his thesis statement? Central purpose. That you may, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah, it's not just it's not just talking about general things that are true of Jesus. I mean, he does give you a lot of uh, general things that are generally true of Jesus, but it it actually is it is fairly specific what he wants you to get. He wants you to get that Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One. And that has to do with the promised one, the Messiah, promised in the Old Testament. So the, 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 the Jesus is the Davidic king that's promised in the Old Testament. Um, Jesus is the prophet who is to come. That prophet language comes up a lot in John's gospel. Are you the prophet who is to come or shall we expect another? Um, so when Jesus feeds the 5,000, that's what they say. Oh, he's the prophet who was to come. Um and that's a that's a prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, that prophet language. But it, a prophet, and the reason I say that about a prophet is a prophet is an anointed figure. They're anointed to prophesy. A, a king is an anointed figure, uh, and especially the David, the promised Davidic king in Second uh, Samuel seven. So Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, not just not just a great person to come along in the line of David, but he is actually the Son of God. And so when you believe that, you have life in his name. And that word life pops up tons of times, dozens and dozens of times in John's gospel. Uh, eternal life or life. Uh, so I am the way and the truth and the life. Whoever, uh, no one gets to the Father but through me. Um, so it's not just believing. It's believing that you may have life. Uh, and that's... That's not just long life or eternal life, so you never die. Uh, that's that's a part of it, but it's also true, abundant, full, uh, rich, joyful life that you have the experience of life now and not just living forever. So that's why he wrote it, so that his readers would come to that kind of knowledge. Um. All right, so now we're going to back up to John 1. So John's got a pretty simple organization.
All right. All right, so that's the outline of John. First 18 verses, uh, typically called the prologue, which matches chapter 21, which is called the epilogue. Uh, so sometimes you read a novel, it's got a prologue. It, it introduces you to the characters and what's gonna happen, uh, or the key things you need to know before you get into the, the meat of the novel. And then you read the novel, and then there's this epilogue. What you know? What happened to the characters after whatever? After the kingdom was conquered. So this is, I think, the best way to see this is the book of signs. And then this is the book of glory. So the book of signs is called that because you get the word sign a bunch of times. Um, and actually the last time, uh, in terms of the main part of the, of the book, is in 1237. Um, it does pop up at the end of chapter 20. Um, Jesus did many other signs. We read that. Um, but the key seven signs, and we'll look at the seven signs. The key seven signs are in the book of signs. And then the book of glory is where Jesus is glorified. So he connects his glory to his crucifixion. And so he's, um, you know, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had before time, before the world. Um, and the way Jesus is going to be glorified is going to involve crucifixion. It's really the whole crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, but that's it. That's the way he's going to be glorified. So that's that's why we call it the Book of Glory. And um, I didn't come up with this, but I do think this is the best way to see John. So in the prologue. Uh, so let me start at the back table and let's read let's read the first 18 verses actually the whole prologue and maybe take uh, one verse a person we'll go down and then back up the front and go from there and no one's life, and the lives of the light of men. The light shining in darkness means nothing has not been seen. There was a man seeking God, his name is John. He came out of the witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe in him. He himself was not the light. He himself was not the light. He came only to witness to the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of god 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, Give this to you if you must know. Jesus came back from the ranch of Pilate, because he was the Son. For from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, this is truth and Jesus. No one has ever seen God, only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thanks, guys. So that is John's prologue. And um, yeah, j- j- well, let's just list off five things we learn about Jesus in the prologue. I mean, there's, you know, there, we could we could come up with 20, but let's just say five. Five things we learn about Jesus. He's ancient. He's what? He's very old. He's very old. Good. Yeah. Because he was there in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, he's ancient. He is the word. There's two. True life with an F. Life. Light. He is the true light with a T. Yes. He's with God. All things were made through him. He's the creator. All right. So that's, I think that's five. Um, like I said, we could go on and on. Um, so in the beginning was, or in the beginning, um, obviously calls to mind what? Yeah, Genesis 1-1, which starts off in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Um, so John is very intentionally calling you back to John uh, to Genesis 1-1. So John 1-1 and Genesis 1-1 belong together. So he's, he's saying, once again, that God that we learn about in Genesis one one is the God I'm talking about, and, and I'm going to I'm going to call him the Word first. I'm not going to call him Jesus too quickly to because uh, I might lose you. I'm going to call him the Word so you're mystified, um, and then I'm going to reveal him as Jesus. Um, the idea of Jesus being the Word, so that. That means a lot of different things. So I, I've listed on the bottom of page 43 a few of them. So Jesus as a word has to do with Christ reveals and fulfills the word of God, the Old Testament. So he's the word in that sense. He brings. Um, yeah, he, he he is he is connected with the Old Testament in this very profound way. Um he speaks words of truth. He speaks the word of God. So he's the he's the word in that sense. And also, if you think of uh, you know you're you're hearing my words now, um, and the, the words I'm speaking are very connected to who I am. Right? It's a very so my brain is is involved in these words. My mouth is involved. In, my body's involved in these words. My entire being is connecting to the words that I'm saying. Right? And so the. It would it wouldn't be very easy to distinguish between my words and me, right? They're just so very connected, and yet at the same time, I am not, you know, the words that I'm just uh, orally, audibly speaking, are are not me. Um, you know, you can distinguish between between us, and so that's 
So you can see how the father speaking through Jesus is it's like that. You know, there's a there's a there's a sense in which they're inseparable. The father and the son are inseparable. And then there's another sense in which they are they are distinguishable. Um, so that's why he's he's with God. But at the same time, he was God. So there's there's that sense. Uh, this is a revelation of God that we have in Jesus. So he's the word in that sense. He's an incarnate communication. Um, yeah, and then I said what I already said to you. All right, so then what's amazing is that the word, if you think of the, the words of Moses or the words of Isaiah or the words of Jeremiah, you read those words on a page, they're profound, they cause us to think or whatever. But what, what John then tells us is that this word, this embodiment of all the communication and revelation of God, became flesh in 114 but the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth uh so um this this uh this glorious as i said glorious revelation of god took on a human persona in jesus and and lived among us so we didn't just hear a voice but actually, we met the person who was the word. So tons, just glorious stuff in, in the opening. Um, so by, the, by the time you get to verse 18, you know that he is God. And there's no question that he's God. But you also know that there's, there's some kind of trinity because he's not, he's not just God, but he's also with God. So there is, there, is a, there is a father and a son there by the end of verse 18. All right, so then we get to the book of signs. And there are seven signs. And um, yeah, so water into wine is the first one. That's in chapter two. So Jesus does the first of his signs at a wedding. That's kind of cool. And, you know, Jesus is... You know, and almost a picture of the joy and the abundant life Jesus is, has come to bring. He, what he does at the wedding is change water to wine. In some ways, you would say that that's that's a strange thing for him to do. He didn't heal someone. He didn't uh, he didn't cause a blind man to see again. He turned water to wine because they ran out of of wine at a wedding. Um, uh, but it is a picture. You know, wine in the Bible is a picture of joy, abundance, the harvest, uh, God's blessing on His people. Um, you can't have, you can't have good wine without good grapes. You can't have good grapes without a good, without a good harvest. And so that the, the wine is always connected to God's blessing in, in the Bible, or at least often. And then when you get to the new heavens, and new earth book of revelation, part of how we know that this is uh, a good thing is that there's wine present. So Jesus turns water to wine. And then in 2.11, it says, this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. So then there's another reference to signs in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And that's where he says, destroy this temple in a three days. I will raise it up. They have no idea what he's talking about. Uh, they think he's talking about the physical temple and it will be destroyed. But he's actually talking about the temple of his body which will be destroyed on the cross, but raised three days later. Um, so why would Jesus refer to his own body as a temple? 
deep question, theological question. Why would Jesus refer to his own body as a temple? So he's, in a sense, the first one to be like that, the first one to have the indwelling spirit. Uh, yeah, there is a truth to that, for sure. Um, another, si another side is that we all, what, what happens in a temple is you access the presence of God. What happens in the true temple is you access the presence of the true God. And so we access the presence of God through the body of Jesus, through Christ. Uh, so that's, so what you're saying is true as well. John, or um, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, but that notion of that we, um, Ephesians 2, but we also encounter, encounter God through Christ. And so he, he is our temple in that true sense as well. So third sign is that Jesus heals the official's son, chapter 4. which is actually called the second sign in 454. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Um, so the third sign, of course, is our, that second sign is our third sign. So I get that. Um, so then there's another healing in chapter five, which is the fourth sign. Then the fifth sign is the feeding of the 5,000. And that's where there's, there's then this extended discussion about signs and, what is true about the bread that Jesus uh, offers. And then in chapter nine, Jesus opens the eyes of the man born blind. And then the culminating sign is raising Lazarus from the dead. And then when you get to chapter 12, so that's in chapter 11, when you get to chapter 12, verse 37, you know, but by, by the, so by this point, the, we've had the triumphal entry. Jesus has done several years of ministry in Galilee and in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas. He's everyone knows about his, his ability to do miracles, his teachings, whatever. But then in verse 37, 12, 37, you get, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And so that's the last reference to signs until um, you get to chapter 20, verse 30. Um Yeah, so that's why we call it the Book of Signs. So you get this uh, um, sign motif. So what what do you you know if you're driving down the road? Tell me about a sign. What does a sign do? Yeah, so it can tell you. It can direct you, guide you. Yes. So that's like you're going to the beach and it says you get to that very discouraging sign that says Wilmington 100 miles. You feel like you've already been driving a ways, but you realize 100 miles feels so far. Yeah. And you never confuse the sign for Wilmington, do you? You never confuse the sign for the beach. They're totally different. You're never tempted just to pull over right there, get out your beach towel and lay out in the sun, right? Because a sign is not the real thing, um, and so with Jesus, there's a the healing is the healings are powerful. The, the healings are wonderful. They're amazing. The miracles are powerful, wonderful, amazing. But they're also pointing to something else. You know, signs are always pointing to something else. So they point to the real thing. 
And so that's why in that John six, uh, feeding the 5,000 and then Jesus talking about himself as the bread of life, the sign was the, was the physical bread provided, but that's just a pointer to Jesus himself, who was the true bread. And so that, that's why signs are, uh, well, that, that word pops up a lot, actually, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, uh, because they are, they are, um, they're telling you that, that as great as this thing is, there's something greater that you really need to be concerned about. Um, all right, so the other thing about the book of signs is we have the famous chapter three there with Nicodemus. Um and we will probably run out of time with this. Um, so John 3.16, has anyone ever heard this verse before? <laughs> For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All right, so as you guys... Um, as you guys grow as as Christians and as you have times with the Lord, a lot of times it's it's hard to know what you know what can I do this morning or tonight or whenever you have your quiet time to help me get the Word of God in my brain, you know, to really think think about it and own it. And one device which uh, every once in a while I will do is where you take a verse and you basically accent different words of it. Um. And then see what comes to mind. So, for instance, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. So, if you emphasize God, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What does that do for that verse? What do, what comes to mind? For God so loved the world. What do you guys think? God. So kind of the who, the who behind it. Yeah. Yeah. For, yeah. Who is it that is doing this thing? And then when, then if you get to loved for God, so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What, what comes to mind? Mm-hmm. Okay. It was an act of love, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What about that world? It really puts us in our place. It's such a gift that like, he love us because we're so much so much greater than us. Yeah. He loves everyone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We got to love the world, right? Um, and then gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a gift. Yeah. Um and then only, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What about that? That kind of shows the greatness of the gift. It is, you know, the sacrifice. 
Yeah. Um, so it elevates the gift, it elevates the love. Clarifies who Jesus is too, doesn't it? He's the only son. There are many children of God through faith, but there's only one son of God in the true fullest sense. Yeah. Um, for God so loved the world that he uh, believes now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What about that? What is that? Call to mind. What we should do. We should believe. Yeah. Yeah, so there's this incredible act that's been done. The son's been given. There's an offer uh, that's been made. You know, whoever, whoever. But then there is a condition. Whoever believes in him, you do have to respond. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then I'll finish with perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What about that? What comes to mind? Those who don't have the gift of God's love will perish. Yeah, so Judah said, uh, those who don't have the gift of God's love will perish. And generally, did one of you say something? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he took our perishing um, and it's and it's it's the consequence, right? If you don't believe, the consequence of not believing is that you will perish. Just like the consequence of believing is that you will have eternal life. Um, so that's that's a way. Um, not all verses work e equally well, but verses like John three sixteen, which are so packed with really rich truth, it can be really helpful. Just to you know that took uh, five minutes to do that, but it's but it's a good way to just cause that that word to sink down in our in our hearts and our souls um so may you believe it and may you share it let me let me pray for us father we give you praise and thanks that you did uh, so love the world that you gave your only son that if we believe in him we won't perish but have it we will we will have eternal life and so i pray that we would respond personally to that that we would be those who do believe in him and and that our lives would bear witness to that fact and uh we pray that we would delight in sharing it with as many people as we can. And um, we give you praise for your word and pray that you would continue to change us through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Judah. Thanks, Sarah.